Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I don't see anyone who could step up who would give the Conservatives more of a chance of winning the next general election. We can't go along with this clown show with just the threat that, oh, yeah, well, anyone else is bound to be worse. Being a good PM is like being a good teacher. You've got to be prepared sometimes to make a decision that is going to leave some people disappointed. If you could be in number 10, everything would be all right. <laughs> and you making the coffee while prodding us in the ribs to do what you want. <laughs> One. We have liftoff. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So Boris Johnson has endured a too-close-for-comfort vote of no confidence. The Prime Minister says it's time to move on. But however sick the country is of government paralysis and Westminster psychodrama, that's not the mood on the Tory backbenches. And it's not the mood in Pearson Towers either, is it, co-pilot? You've written <laughs> a big bazooka of a column this week, <laughs> declaring this is a remarkably little confidence and barely disguised despair vote. The link is in the notes to this episode. You want Johnson to go. Now, many Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers will share your sense of anger, exasperation and letdown, perhaps over Partygate and or Boris Johnson's broader policy agenda or lack thereof. This is a pivotal moment in the Johnson Premiership co-pilot. He'll either soldier on or the whole thing could be about to implode and with it the governance of the world's fifth largest economy in the midst of a war in Europe, a cost of living crisis and broader multifaceted national angst. But if Boris goes, though, Alison, and you've made one howitzer of a case, then what of the next immediate question? Who, co-pilot? Who needs to now step forward and grab the leadership? And along with it, the hopes and dreams of this country. Which man or woman, amidst the sea of mediocrity, which is our House of Commons at the moment, do you think has what it takes? <laughs> well, Did you like that one? Did you like that intro? Top notch. <laughs> if you could be in number 10, everything would be all right. <laughs> Just me, Roger Bootle, and you making the coffee <laughs> while prodding us in the ribs to do what you want. <laughs> I'd bring a large Jubilee sherry trifle. We'd be absolutely fine. Every, every day of the week. <laughs> we'd get the place sorted out, you know, double quick. I did think that it, in Who Should Take Over, I don't know if you saw, there was a fantastic trooping the colour, and Seamus the Irish wolfhound, who is the mascot of the Irish guards, I thought he'd be good for Chancellor. And then in the completely psychedelic, mad Jubilee pageant, they had 20 corgis on wheels. So I thought if we just replaced the cabinet for a week with 20 corgis on wheels, and then at the end of the week, we could decide whether it had gone 
any better or worse. You know what? When I saw that stuff on TV, it reminded me. You know, when we were kids and you'd watch Magic Roundabout, it was wonderfully mad. It was. It was damp. It was ridiculous. It was dames in jags. It was mad people on buses. I mean, they tried to cut Cliff Richard out from the big pop concert, but <laughs> Cliff managed to get onto one of the double-decker buses and was singing from the top by himself, basically belting out congratulations to anyone who didn't want to hear it. But no, it was mad. And then, of course, we came out of what had been a time of great sort of happy silliness and elation and straight into the Monday's vote of confidence. Talk about a slap round the chops on a Monday morning. It really was. But don't worry, Liam, because even though to some of us, we would think if we were a manager that 41% of our employees thinking we were absolutely crap and should go immediately, some people might take that as a bit of a rebuke. But no, the Prime Minister, let's bash on. Bash on, bash on with what, we ask. It's a bit like a fairground barker on the back of an open-top lorry, just sort of chucking toys and sweets at the electorate and saying, but he got the big calls right, Liam, even though he's booed outside St Paul's Cathedral. There's so many different things to say, and as you say, I wrote a more in sorrow than in anger piece in my column this week. But the same old excuses are trotted out, aren't they? Don't hand the gift to Labour. Beware the coalition of chaos. Never mind that what we've currently got feels like chaos. And something, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack and I'll hand over to you in a minute. But I thought it was interesting that before the vote, the Prime Minister wrote to Tory MPs and in his letter he said, let us refuse to dance to the tune of the media. Now you are getting some people saying, oh, it's all got up, but the media hates Boris. It's a Remainer plot. You think, no, it isn't a Remainer plot. 148 Conservative MPs went back to their constituencies and Tory voters told them in the street, if you don't get rid of that charlatan forward slash liar, useless, whatever then we will never vote for you again. And you know, co-pilot, don't you, how many thousands of emails I've got to that effect. So what I'm seeing is this astonishing disconnect between the people we elected with a, a wonderful majority. Boris Johnson, majority of 80, could have had a fantastic reforming government. I don't even know how to describe it, really. I mean, people say, is he toast? I don't think he's toast. I think he's a slowly rotting edifice. He is a wedding cake left out in the rain. I completely see where you're coming from. And you writing this column and the Telegraph putting it on the front of the paper, the masthead, directing the world to that column, I think is quite a big moment. And I think it's absolutely right that we devote this episode of Planet Normal to what you wrote, why you wrote it. Because... It will be very, very noticed in number 10 and across the Conservative Party and across a lot of the country that you, who have been supportive of Boris Johnson... Big supporter, big supporter. You, who were a Brexiteer, you, who are not a Conservative all the time, you've voted for various different parties, as we both have, but you've definitely been backing this government. And if you have abandoned him, he's got a problem, given your reach into... Conservative Britain, particularly among those Tory activists who can help to decide who, if anyone, replaces him. I've read your column several times and so much of it chimes with what we've been discussing over recent weeks. 
I don't disagree with you for one moment that there are major policy concerns here. I don't disagree with you for one moment that he's been flabby and limp about his mm. policies. I am so frustrated. I'm I'm very much a policy person, Alison. You know, I've literally mm. written books that I've expected government ministers to pick up and say, oh, this is a good idea. Let's do it. And you know, they're, they're picking the books up and having conversations with me but then it all gets ensnarled in the Whitehall weeds and a couple mm. of Tory MPs object, so it all goes away and there doesn't seem to be any follow-through. The fact that they were so slow to understand there's a cost-of-living crisis, the fact that their answer to a cost-of-living crisis is to borrow and print more money and give it to people rather than lowering taxes to actually boost growth so the cake is bigger, the fact that there's still those ridiculous levies on people's electricity bills. 25% of people's electricity bills are going to often big renewable companies or landowners in subsidies. Suspend those now, given that there's a cost of living crisis. So many areas, the policy has been ill thought through, the line of least resistance and extremely disappointing and entirely unconservative, by the way, and that will really disappoint people who backed Boris Johnson in December 2019, not just traditional Tory voters, but a lot of those red wall voters as well. And I'm not surprised that you wrote the column in the fashion that you did with the power and the passion that you did, because I've seen that coming for several weeks. I've seen it in the Planet Normal inbox. I've seen it in your replies that you assiduously write to so many of our wonderful readers and listeners. And yet... We have to ask the question, because it's the question that Tory backbenchers are asking. If they do make a move, and I do think the 1922 committee will change the rules if it needs to, to have another vote within a year of the last one. That's certainly what would have happened to Theresa May. That's why she went in the end, because she could see that the 22s would change the rules. So she didn't have that protection of a year after she won the first vote of no confidence by bigger margin than Boris Johnson, by the way. She got 63% of her MPs mm. backing her. He, as you said at the beginning, got 58 59%. Given that, if they do try and depose him, who or what replaces Boris Johnson? That is the question. If we accept your argument in your column, and it's such a powerful argument, we then must answer that next unavoidable question. I would say, Liam, and I do find this quite shocking, that we are getting committed Conservative voters. Many, at the time of recording, there are about 2,500 replies below the line under my column. And quite a few of them are saying, I don't care if there's a Starmer government. I feel it's all so dreadful I simply don't care. The people I voted for deserve a period in opposition to reflect on how dreadful they've been. Now, this is astonishing, absolutely astonishing that people are furious. Of course, we should say that there are still some hashtag back Boris supporters who will say, 
He did deliver Brexit. I mean, you and I had differences with him over the lockdowns, but he did bring us out of lockdown faster than many other countries. He did outsource the vaccinations to Kate Bingham, Dame Kate Bingham, which was a very, very good move. And of course, he has been playing a very powerful and inspiring role in supporting President Zelensky and Ukraine, if he was able to bring any of that sort of vigour and inspiration to domestic politics that he is about the country at the other side of Europe, then we'd be thrilled. But I know what you're saying, Leon. you're saying, who else? But we, we can't literally, we can't go along with this clown show with just the sort of the threat that, oh, yeah, well, anyone else is bound to be worse. I would turn that argument around and say, they think, Boris, he's a winner. No, I don't think he is any longer a winner. If you look at the opinion polls, if you look at the fact that 72% of the British people say they no longer trust the Prime Minister, really, now we should break down this vote, shouldn't we, the confidence vote, because it was 148, 41% of Tory MPs voted against him. But a big slice of MPs, Liam, as you know, are on the government payroll, said they are ministers and parliamentary secretaries and so on. So they don't want to lose their highest salary. But looking, just looking at the numbers, it does appear that some ministers even may have voted against him. Either three quarters of all backbenchers voted against him who aren't on the payroll or some of the payroll vote ministers, parliamentary aides, as you say, will have voted against him, even though they said they supported him. Yes. And I think that, as we're saying, stick with the devil, you know, because he will deliver. I'm seeing a lame duck prime minister. Last week, we had a Planet Normal listener who is a Tory campaigning in Wakefield. We mentioned last week, these two pivotal by-elections are coming up on June the 23rd. That's Wakefield, that's the Red Wall and Honiton and Tiverton, which is in Devon. And that's very much Blue Wall. And our source who is out on the doorsteps in Wakefield is saying, we won't vote for Boris. And I think we saw that in Chesham and Amersham. I think we saw my lot sitting on their hands, staying home, refusing to vote. Now, I don't know whether this has penetrated the thick skulls of the parliamentary party, but it seems very, very obvious to me. And I do think there was argument, wasn't there, about whether he was booed as he arrived for the Thanksgiving service at the weekend at St Paul's Cathedral. But a sitting prime minister being booed as he goes into a religious service was going to rattle MPs. What do you think? We've got the cabinet so far. They're all sticking with him. If we do see these big defeats, certainly Wakefield's going to go, but that's a small majority, about three and a half thousand. So that would be sad, but or bad, but not fatal. But this big Devon constituency, one of the biggest Brexit voting constituencies in the country, Boris will have been a hero for them. And I said in my piece, Liam, I am torn. So on Twitter, somebody upbraided me and they said, Alison, you're the telegraph, you should be defending him. Now, it does take quite a lot to not defend him, I think, because I was very grateful to him for using his guile and pluck and force to ram Brexit through. You remember, Liam, that, you know, uh, Remainer Parliament and how extraordinary that was and the elation that you and I felt when we had that Brexit dinner, when we knew he'd won the 
December 13th, 2019. The fact that democracy had been upheld, that's what really mm. upset us, that, that yes. you had a Remainer parliament that was trying to usurp the outcome of a referendum. We both felt huge relief. I agree. You've thrown that question at me. William Hague, obviously former leader of the Conservative Party, very sensible commentator, he has said this week the revolt makes the Prime Minister's position unsustainable. He must spare his party and the country further agonies. And William Hague has compared Boris's position now to driving along the motorway with two flat tyres. Do you think it's feasible that he can go on with two wheels? Well, firstly, I should say that I'm proud of you that you wrote the column that you wrote because it is a really big move for you to write that column. And I'm sure you've taken lots of brickbats from a lot of Conservatives for doing that. But what you've done is you've demonstrated that you are, to your fingertips, a journalist and you will call it the way you see it. Your party inclinations do not extend to party tribal loyalties. And that is the mark of a journalist to me. And far too many journalists in this country are blind to that. Far too many journalists in this country will always vote for one party or the other. And I personally don't think they're journalists, but I think that you most definitely are. And you've demonstrated it yet again, as you have over many years. But I would say in what you just said, the bit I would pick up was it's not good enough to say that he can carry on and it will all be fine. He has to go. Before you depose him, you have to have a plan of what's then going to happen or at least an idea that some of the potential people who could take over from him after a leadership election and Tory leadership elections are notoriously unpredictable in terms of the outcomes because the two-stage nature of them, the secret ballot aspects of who's backing who in the leadership within the parliamentary party, the fact that the parliamentary party only has to put two people forward for the constituents to vote on the Tory party in the country. And often the Tory party in the country don't get a choice between the candidates that they want. Um, The parliamentary party tends to be a lot more metropolitan in its outlook, a lot more remaining, if you like, than the party across the country as a whole. But I don't see anyone at this point who could step up, who would give the Conservatives more of a chance of winning the next general election, if that is the purpose of what you're trying to achieve. And let me say this, I actually think that when the history of this period is written, when the book comes out, Mm. in a year or two's time. I actually reckon, I suspect strongly that Downing Street backing MPs put letters in to precipitate this vote, to bring it forward before the Honiton and Tiverton by-election, which you so rightly identify as pivotal, the sixth anniversary of the Brexit referendum, how so many of his enemies within this party and beyond would like to see that become 23rd of June 2022, the moment of his denouement. It's much, much more difficult to have a vote of no confidence immediately after that Hollands and Tiverton by-election loss, if it happens, and to turn mm. over a 20,000-plus majority. But the Lib Dems are really <laughs> good at this stuff. The Lib Dems, they're known as the yellow peril when they campaign locally. They are brilliant local campaigners. They take no prisoners. They've always been strong in the Southwest, and they will give the Tories a huge run for their money. The fact that poor old Neil 
parish, the tractor fancier <laughs> left in the circumstances that he did won't help. There'll be many, understandably, people just outraged and disgusted by that. And so they won't vote for the Tories on principle. But we have to come up with a plan. You know, we are commentators. What we do for a living is look at this stuff and our viewers and listeners rightly weigh our words carefully and we must weigh our own opinions and words carefully. So who do you think could replace him? Can I just say what you're saying to me is you still think Boris Johnson is the best with no other candidate. But I'm trying to say the reason I wrote my column this week is because I now think we are moving heavily into liability territory. We have people, Tiverton and Honiton, okay, Liam, the majority that Neil tracked a parish had, all right, so 24,239, that should be a rock-steady safe seat. If the Lib Dems take it, which is not inconceivable, that's an astonishing majority to overturn. And if that happens in the House of Commons, there will be 291 Conservative MPs. But by-elections never translate into general elections, Alison. Governments always get hammered midterm in by-elections. Thatcher lost loads of by-elections and went on to win general elections. Yes, but the difference is, yes, Thatcher did have a lot of by-election defeats. Thatcher had the confidence, A, she had a clear political programme yeah. and the, the vast majority of the members were firmly behind her. What we now have is a Prime Minister with no clear political programme. Couldn't apart agree from more. Covering Apart from own. keeping himself and his retinue in power. I mean, that's it. Absolutely. Keeping himself and his retinue in power. And you have a party membership where I would say the vast majority of Conservative members do not recognise this as a Conservative government. And hell hath no fury like a diehard Conservative school. Now, I said in the column, I have a WhatsApp group, which is full of rather formidable Tory ladies. Go on, and tell us what it's called. It's got a great name, this WhatsApp group. It's the Ranty Pants Club. And we are ranty pantsing. And I think if these women, honestly, Liam, if you met them... Wouldn't want to get the wrong side of you lot, the ranty pants. My God. <laughs> Imagine you lot arguing over the last aubergine in Waitrose. <laughs> <laughs> Claret would be imminent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm not talking the drink. <laughs> Waitrose woman rampant is this club, in the heraldic sense rather than the rebellious Sorry. sense. But it strikes me just from that group of very committed women who actively, really actively campaign for Brexit, who were huge Boris people, and like me, just feel disappointed, sad and so on. But coming back to, yes, so who to take over, I would say that you we haven't always known in history Who's going to come forward? But the front bench is so thin. Yeah. It's so thin. There's such a dearth of talent. You and I were discussing this earlier. We've touched on it in previous episodes of Planet Normal. Think back to the Thatcher cabinet of the 80s. Lawson, Howe, yeah. Peter Walker, Michael Hesertine, Gillian Shepherd. Virginia Bottomley for crying out loud. Serious, serious <laughs> people. But really, and now you look at the Tory front bench. You know, think of the new Labour front bench. Robin Cook, David Blunkett, Jack Straw. You know, you might not agree with them, but you can't say they're not serious people. They are serious people. They had a plan. They came in. You and I would have disagreed with some of it. We would have embraced a lot of it, right? But they had a plan. Boris has no plan. 
I'd vote for Tony Blair tomorrow. That's where I am now. I really would. I know that's probably quite an outrageous thing to say. We've disagreed slightly on the whole party gate thing. It's not that, Liam. It's not whether people had a few drinks at the end of the day. It's just the absolute, the lying, the dissembling. I just got to a point where I thought you literally can't stand there and tell us this. Everybody knows it's ludicrous. And we're all supposed to nod along. So I don't know. I think that a leader could emerge, not from the centre. We could be looking at Penny Mordaunt, Tom Tugendhat. I do think it has to be a Brexiteer or the membership will not vote for someone who isn't a Brexiteer. Penny was a Brexiteer. Tom, of course, absolutely wasn't a Brexiteer. But you're saying we should be skipping a generation. We should be going to a much younger person. It was very interesting to me that one of the rebels was Dehenna Davison, who is one of the red wall intake. I thought that's very interesting, isn't it? She's voted against Boris. Why has she done that? Because again, she knows her constituency is up in arms. So I think that the wrong questions are being asked. What would he have to do to convince me that I was wrong? So launch a Tory blitzkrieg tomorrow, slash taxes, wage an all-out war on the cost of living, reform the institutions, give voters, conservative voters, what they thought they were voting for. And he has, as I said this week, we feel like a cheated spouse. We feel like the husband or the wife is lying to us and saying, of course I'm doing this, darling. Of course I'm cutting your taxes. Of course you have a conservative government. (laughs) No, we bloody don't. And I think it's almost that more than anything, Liam, that gets me is the here's a Mars bar, shut up. It's just treating the public for fools. Or we might bring back some more grammar schools. The Cones hotline is being prepared (laughs) as we speak. It's really in the back of the car policy making in in the thick of it, isn't it? Yes. The comedy series. I should say you mentioned Dehenna Davison. I know Dehenna Davison well because she presents on GB News. She's 28 years old, a very, very impressive young woman. Very interesting. She took that line of rebelling against her own prime minister. I agree with you. There needs to be a big shift in policy. The problem is, though, Alison, rather than coming up with some red meat proposals that the Tory backbenches can really rally round and Tory voters in the country, it's not going to be red meat. It's going to be a vegan sausage. (laughs) Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Daniel Hannan's among the UK's most influential Conservative writers and politicians. As a member of the European Parliament from 1999 to 2020, he played a leading role in shaping, launching, supporting and delivering the UK's campaign to leave the European Union. A leading commentator who writes weekly in The Telegraph, of course, and has published numerous pamphlets and books, 
Dan's a highly skilled orator whose speeches have attracted huge attention on YouTube and across other social media. Now in the House of Lords, Dan Hannan remains a Boris Johnson loyalist, but he has major misgivings about the direction and execution of government policy under his former Telegraph colleague. I started by asking Dan what he made of the just-about vote of confidence in the Prime Minister by Tory MPs. I think it's bad but not irrecoverable. The conventional view, which you will have read in lots of newspapers already and heard from lots of people, is Boris cannot pull it back from here because it's a dispersed opposition, right? The reasoning goes, if this were one group of people driven by one particular issue, then there would be a policy solution. The Europhiles got rid of Margaret Thatcher in 1990, the Eurosceptics got rid of Theresa May, but the argument goes is about character or whatever, and therefore it's about Boris himself. Now, I don't think that is true, and I'll tell you why. Yes, for some people it was about cake. Yes, for some people it was about not being promoted or being overlooked. And yes, for some people they never forgave him for winning the 2016 referendum. But they were never enough to trigger the ballot. The new cohort that joined them were triggered by what happened at the end of May. In other words, the let's call it a budget statement, the windfall tax, whacking up of corporation tax, the sense that we were going to try and spend our way out Pretty of this. unconservative policy package. Exactly right. I was speaking to somebody on the morning of the vote who was a Boris guy until three weeks ago. He was a Leave voter. He'd backed Boris in the leadership. He'd backed him all the way through the cakery and the Sugre stuff. And he said, if after all that, the first big test, all the... Met investigation behind him. His instinct is to spend more money, not to try and tackle inflation, but to try and help victims of inflation, even at the price of worsening inflation by spending more. Then what the hell am I bothering for? And I think that was a large number of people. So what I'm saying is there is a potential policy solution if he is prepared to pivot and behave differently. That's interesting. That is counter to the sort of sages of Abingdon Green, the people standing outside Westminster speaking down the lens of cameras, you're saying there are policy levers he can pull that are conservative that will get a lot of those MPs back on side and may even get quite a lot of voters back on side. Is that why we're hearing the morning after the vote from the cabinet, he's going for lower taxes? Well, as he said also, of course, to the 1922 just before the vote, the trouble is, is he credible on this? Because we were told a few weeks ago. COVID is over. That was a one-off. We now understand we need to shrink the state back again to a kind of manageable level. We were assured that any future surplus would be used for tax cuts rather than for further giveaways. Of course, giveaways are always popular and tax cuts involve spending cuts that are unpopular, especially when the big increases have been in healthcare and social security. And the trouble is governing means taking tough decisions rather than just talking about them, right? You can't be a good prime minister if you are primarily keen to be popular all the time. It's a bit like, think back to when you were at school, Liam, right? Being a good PM is like being a good teacher. You've got to be prepared sometimes to make a decision that is going to leave some people disappointed. We've both known Boris for a very long time, a lot longer than most of the people listening. We're in that weird subsection of the population who've known him. He is a very likable man with a huge generosity of spirit and a largeness of character, but he doesn't like having to present people with tough choices. His natural modus operandi is amiable, breezy optimism. And that's fine for normal times, but that's not the situation that the economy is in now. 
We have both known him a long time. And let me say to you then, I'm surprised that he's been so limp on many of these decisions and policy areas. He's been leader since July 2019. Yes, of course, his premiership so far has been dominated by, quotes getting Brexit done and also by the pandemic. What an incredibly difficult hand he's been dealt in that sense. And yet, Dan... Take the renewable subsidies off people's electricity bills. They're even doing it in Germany. Take five pence off the VAT on petrol and diesel. These are basic policies that Middle England is screaming out for. You and I both agree there is a big argument to move away from hydrocarbons towards renewable energy sources. But you and I both agree to do that off the back of ordinary people at in the midst of a cost of living squeeze, is just bad politics. Do you know, there was a line in Jesse Norman's letter explaining why he was voting against Boris. And I, I'm very pro-Jesse Norman. I think he's a genius. I think his books are brilliant. But there was one sentence that I really disagreed with, where he said, we need warm, unifying leadership. You know what? At the moment, no, we bloody don't. We need leaders who are prepared to take tough decisions that will be unpopular in the short term, but that are necessary in the long run. Like that tough teacher at school who made a lasting impression and you know 50 years on, they did you good. You realise that they were the ones who were really invested in your success and they were the ones who cared about you more than the ones who wanted to be in with the cool kids in class, right? And it's exactly the same, whether you're looking at what you just spoke about. So if energy prices are a problem, stop taxing 90p a litre and on all the rest of it, right? Rather than raising even more tax to give people to pay for the bloody thing that you've created in the first place. But you'd think between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, they would get that. If you were serious about bringing down the cost of living, you would, for example, have zero tariffs and zero quotas on imported food, clothing, footwear, etc. We haven't done that because we have these protectionist lobbies. We can take the VAT off energy because we're outside the EU. We're not doing that. But the big one is, of course, the unavailability of housing here. We have more cramped and more expensive units of home than anyone else. I know that I'm talking to somebody who has literally written the book about this. If you are serious about bringing down the cost of living, you have to start there. The trouble is, there was a really good white paper on housing that Nick Boyd-Smith basically inspired, yep. came out in 2020, that showed how we could have denser and more beautiful houses in the way that Roger Scruton had always envisaged. A couple of MPs kicked off and we dropped the whole idea. And that's what's got to change. We have to be prepared to take decisions that are controversial, any move away from the status quo is going to upset some people who have benefited from it, right? But unless we do that, we are going to go completely bankrupt as a country. If we just keep on spending, borrowing, taxing, subsidizing, spraying money, or as Boris would say, spaffing money up the wall to any group that has a begging bowl out, we are doing ourselves ruinous damage because we'll find that we've left the EU only to become less competitive, more highly taxed and more regulated than we were when we were in it. Can I just say, I would settle very comfortably for the rather paunchy, corpulent, wheezy government we had with Gordon Brown levels of spending, right? That would be a massive improvement. So tax 35 or 40% of right. GDP rather than right. 50 or 55%. Uh, that should yeah. be the most uncontroversial thing. Is it that difficult for a Conservative government to go back to Gordon Brown's How levels of spending? How many chances can you give this guy? My co-pilot, Alison Pearson, to whom I must answer, she would say if she was here, Dan, we've heard it all before, we can completely agree with you. We know there are really good people in and around the top of the party. Your name would be among half a dozen. How long do we have to wait? How many chances do we give this guy before we think he just doesn't have 
the lead in his pencil to do this. I mean, I think we are literally on the last chance. And I think we're going to find out, by the way, very soon whether he means it when we see the details of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. I was prepared to cut him quite a lot of slack during COVID. I was one of the first. I was anti-lockdown back in March 2020, right? And I stand by all of that, which is why I never condemned any politician for lockdown breaches. So I never had any doubt in my mind about the cake. I just think the whole thing was ridiculous. I also was prepared to look at the big picture, which is that every lifting of restrictions that Boris carried out was done in the teeth of public resistance. The opinion polls wanted more and more authoritarianism all the way through. So Boris, I think, deserves some credit for within the realm of the possible, having got us out of lockdown before most other countries. Now that we're out of it, it's been a year since the lifting of the last effective restrictions. Now is the chance to start restoring order and sanity to our public finances and to catch up with all the deregulation that, by the way, shouldn't have been completely put on hold. A government is capable of doing other stuff even during a pandemic. And we were very, very slow with things like civil service reform and you know, getting rid of some of the, the more onerous financial services regulations and so on. We're talking about it now, but it's still just talk. And this is really why I say we're down to the last chance. Boris has repeatedly said, we're going to deregulate. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to slim down the civil service. And we're going to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol, right? We know, in other words, that he understands what needs to happen. The question is, is he always going to bulk at the first hint of opposition? Or is he going to follow through? And now, we were promised within the next few days a bill on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I think that's going to be the test of whether he means it. If we see movement, then I think that Boris can fly again. We'll come on to the Northern Ireland Protocol, Dan. But just before we do, let me put it to you with all respect. Are you not just slightly guilty of wishful thinking? Isn't it already too late for him? I've seen him come back from the most extraordinary positions. He'd have to be Houdini and Blondin combined. Kind of is a bit, though, isn't he? I mean, this is... Chucked over a waterfall in a barrel wrapped up in chains. <laughs> he is a protean figure, to use a word that he would use. I'm afraid that a big part of the problem is that he sensed the mood during the pandemic. Pandemics make people warier, more introverted more protectionist, more authoritarian. Let's not beat about the bush, right? It's a well-observed psychological phenomenon. Any natural disaster, an earthquake, a war, a volcano, anything like that, tends to make people more demanding of the smack of firm government. And he lost his sense of immortality, right? Yeah, but also he could read which way public opinion was moving. And he saw that there was just much more demand for government intervention, both in the literal sense of lockdowns and all the rest of it, and in the wider sense of a more interventionist state. The last time this happened on this scale was after the Second World War, right? So rather like with COVID, the state had assumed these supposedly emergency powers in 1940. And then look what happened after the victory was won. It was in no hurry to give them back. So we still had ID cards until 1952. We had rationing until 1954. We had conscription until 1960. And I'm afraid that's happening worldwide in this as in other countries. We're just in for a much more authoritarian, etatiste, dirigiste phase of government on every continent. And in the short term, it's terrifically popular. And that's the pressure on Boris, right? What we're asking him to do is to make necessary cuts to the state and necessary reductions in the power of government, which will be unpopular in the short term, whose long-term benefits, however, will not be felt until after the general election and possibly by some future successor. And that's why it's a difficult ask. Let's just finish with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Just give a quick 
summing up of how you think it's been enacted, where you think the blame currently lies? Because so many of our listeners, they will hear endlessly from most broadcasters that it's all the UK's fault, we're being unreasonable, we're breaking international law. I'm speaking, of course, as an Irish citizen, as an Irish Catholic. The first point to make, and this cannot be stressed too strongly, especially to any listeners overseas, right? Britain was never going to raise a single matchstick of infrastructure. The people who said that the border was necessary were the EU. They were the ones who said, we need a border in order to protect the integrity of the single market. That point seems to have been lost as soon as you take this argument overseas. But all of the row is about how far should Britain go to accommodate the EU's desire not to have any infrastructure. We could perfectly legally just say, do you know what, guys? We're not raising anything on our side. What you do on your side is your business. Over to you. We're not doing that. We're going massively out of our way to say we'll have a red channel of goods. We'll check it all for you. No other country has done that. So we've done all of that and got, I think, almost no credit either in Brussels or internationally for doing it. Because as you know, Liam, we've got this weird situation six years after the referendum where we've created this tribe of British broadcasters and British columnists who cannot ever blame the EU for anything. However unreasonable, however self-contradictory, however punitive its attitude, everything for them is always Britain's fault. It's one of the saddest aspects of the polarisation that followed the referendum. But the fundamental issue for the EU, it seems to me, is this. Their stated objectives are not their real objectives. So their stated objective is protection of the single market, right? Oh, it would be a terrible disaster if a single pork pie crossed into County Donegal, right? What we are proposing to do, as we speak would very comfortably address that issue. The green channel for goods that are not going to cross the border and the freedom for Northern Irish firms that don't export to follow either UK or EU regulations, UK control of taxation and neutral arbitration like every other treaty. If the EU's only real objective were to keep the pork pies out of Cavan, it would have no problem with that. Unfortunately, I think it has a different set of objectives. One is to create an all-island economy, which is happening because... Firms in Northern Ireland that cannot now source from Great Britain because of the paperwork are perfectly understandably sourcing from Ireland. Another is to ensure that a post-EU Britain doesn't become too competitive. So they're using this to try and get us to follow their rules on food standards and all the rest of it so that we don't end up importing, you know, delicious American beef rather than French or Irish beef. And then I think, finally, they want to give us a bit of a kicking. And of course, they can't say that. And the reason that they keep coming back to the one argument they've got, which is, but you signed it, but you signed it, is because they can't admit that all that would really happen if we made the changes that are being proposed is that they would no longer get to act in this punitive way. I have to say one last thing, though, about the you signed it, you signed it argument. Let's remember the circumstances in which this unequal treaty was signed. No one in Brussels suggested placing Northern Ireland in a separate regulatory jurisdiction until after our 2017 general election. So the first year after the vote, all of the talk was about finding technical solutions. British and Irish officials were working and very Andy well. Kenny, it was all fine. It was all fine. The two sets Nerds of customers... like you and me knew it was going on. We knew the two civil services were solving these low-key technical issues. It was when May lost a majority, became dependent on the DUP. No, it wasn't even that. It was the Ben Act. In terms, in legislation, passed a bill saying, we will only leave the EU on terms that Brussels likes. Well, what do you expect Brussels to do in that situation? They said, oh, well, in that case, we want A, B and C. And they started making these outrageous demands. So when people who voted for the Ben Act or who supported it in the country now have the gall to turn around and say, well, you signed it, 
I'm afraid they have forfeited the right to be taken seriously. So what do you think we are going to see in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol? Do you think that the UK will be muscular about it? Will trigger Article 16, which legally allows the renegotiation of the treaty. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much more than Article 16, because we need to remove the jurisdiction of the ECJ. So there is going to need to be legislation here. And that's why I think it's really important that the bill should not be a kind of contingent bill that says we may do this at short notice. It has to actually contain the relevant legislation, not least because it is likely to be held up in the House of Lords. It may be a year before we can implement it. I think it's possible. Look, the blonde Houdini, the greased albino, whatever, when his back was slightly up against the wall in February, when the cakery began, we started seeing a lot more movement. There was the Rwanda decision. You know, there was the privatisation of Channel 4. There was the promise that there wouldn't be any more spending increases until there'd been tax rises. An awful lot of things changed, partly, I think, because there were different people in Downing Street. He brought in, mm. you know, David Canzini and Andrew Griffith and Stephen Barclay and so on. I think his situation is now so much more dangerous than it was then that it is perfectly possible that he'll read where the majority of the party is and he'll say, I can win back one section of MPs who are the biggest lot of my critics, those who want the things we were elected on. And the first way of doing that, to show that we mean it, is that we're going to take back regulatory control over the whole of the United Kingdom. Daniel Hanna, we shall see. Thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Great pleasure, Liam. That was such an interesting interview, Liam. I could listen to you and Dan talk for hours. He was saying in his lovely mellifluous way some pretty jaw-dropping things, wasn't he? I mean, here is this conservative peer appointed to the House of Lords by his friend Boris Johnson, literally harking back to the halcyon economics of Gordon Brown. I mean, that was pretty astonishing, wasn't it? It was for Dan Hannan to say that, in his view, a Gordon Brown government would be a massive improvement on a Boris Johnson government policy-wise is astonishing. <laughs> it is. It's incredible. It's astonishing, given that everyone in the business of politics knows that Dan Hannan is a very seriously analytical man. He is not just a tub-thumping politician. He really knows his way around the policy thickets. And even Dan, as one of the Prime Minister's most prominent non-MP supporters, though he is, of course, a parliamentarian in the House of Lords, for him to say that the Prime Minister is in the last chance saloon and policy-wise, Gordon Brown's flabby style of government would be a massive improvement. That should trouble the headline writers, that one. I was intrigued that he said that Boris's situation was bad but not irrecoverable and made the analogy with Houdini going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Houdini and Blondin. (laughs) Yes, I didn't know who the second one was. Is that another escapologist? Blondin was a tightrope walker of Lure who took enormous risks and managed to get away with them. But Dan Hammond said that Boris doesn't like unpopularity. He doesn't like having to present people with tough choices. But as we know, Liam, we are about to experience a dramatic drop in living standards, stories about food, poverty, soaring energy crisis. You know, I filled up the car this week, £104. It's not a good time for a prime minister who basically likes making people feel good about themselves, is it? And the other point I would make is that To some extent, when he says perhaps he could now, under pressure, in danger, Boris could pivot 
to some of the things that people voted for. Does that not give you pause for thought about the nature of the person? This isn't a conviction politician, is it? This is a politician whose convictions are about themselves being the prime minister rather than convictions about the well-being and direction of the country, I would say. I think that's right. But I think the real conviction politicians only turn out to be conviction politicians in retrospect. What do I mean by that? I would say that all leaders, all policymakers, they end up enacting the policies that they enact as a result of lots of iterative processes at the time, lots of checks and balances, lots of advances and retreats. And that is true even of Margaret Thatcher. The word privatisation wasn't in the 1979 manifesto. So I'm not saying that Boris Johnson couldn't have a better plan. Of course, he he has no plan. His plan is just self-preservation. But what I would say, I've seen enough policymaking up close over enough years to know that things can change really quickly. And I do think his only hope now, and I think that was a very significant intervention by Dan Hannan to say what he said publicly about his close friend, I do think his only hope now is, as you said earlier, no vegan sausage, proper <laughs> policy red meat. And that doesn't mean doing things that are venal and nasty. It means, as Dan, I thought, explained very, very well. It means letting people keep more of their money, having a sense that the way to get out of a recession isn't to spend your way out of a recession. It's to deregulate and to lower taxation and lower the burden on business to grow your way out of a recession. This is not dramatic, extreme stuff. Even Jim Callaghan back in 1976, in one of the most important policy-making moments in British post-war history, he said in a speech written by Peter Jay, who at the time was working for him, somebody many of our listeners will remember, mm. we used to think you could spend your way out of a recession. I tell you now, in all candour, that we can't because it just ends up with more inflation. We are having to relearn these policy lessons that we've learned many times over in the history of this country and indeed the history of the world. And people like Dan Hannan, who's a very clued up guy when it comes to history and policy making, is trying to remind Boris Johnson, who doesn't know much history, by the way, in my experience, he can recite a bit of Greek badly. He does not know much <laughs> history, by the way. You know, they need to learn the history of post-war British policymaking and to understand that the route we're taking, whether it's driven by Sunak or Sunak being pushed by Johnson or Johnson being pushed by Sunak, between the two of them, they are making exactly the wrong policy moves to get us out of a cost of living crisis, to de-gum, to kickstart the British economy. It should be about lower taxation letting people keep more of their money, encouraging business rather than ensnaring and burdening it with all this extra taxation and red tape. That's what Dan's saying. That's what I'm saying. It's what lots of Middle England is saying. It's what a lot of people on the Tory back benches are saying. And a policy jamboree is pretty much the only thing that's going to unite the likes of Steve Baker on the Brexiteer wing of the Tory backbenches and the likes of Tom Tugendhat, who's very much from the more moderate progressive side, Jesse Norman and so on. If you do low taxation now, they can rally round that. Well, trained up by my co-pilot, I've been doing a bit of economic 
research this week, I noticed, for instance, that yesterday, Liam, was Tax Freedom Day. Uh, I don't have to tell you that's when people start earning for themselves, not giving their money to the exchequer. And that Tax Freedom Day fell a week later this year than last year, which just is a simple way of showing the increased tax burden that a Conservative government whose manifesto said it specifically would not be raising taxes has lied. The other thing I just wanted to ask you, Liam, quickly is this thing we keep coming back to about fuel duty, this huge price at the petrol pumps now. With my Velma hat on, I went to look this up. So fuel duty is 52.95p per litre, and that sum is fixed. What I found out was that the VAT, that that's the issue, as the VAT increases with the increase in the underlying cost. Would you say, co-pilot, that the Treasury is ripping the British people off at the petrol pumps and could they do something about it if they wanted to? They certainly could. We've made this point several times on Planet Normal over recent weeks. As the price of petrol goes up, the amount of pound notes the Treasury gets in VAT goes up, even if the rate of VAT stays the same because VAT is a percentage of the price that you pay. There is scope in the budget to do more. We should not be borrowing and spending and printing, by the way, lots more money. We should be lowering tax. We should be doing it now because if we don't, the British economy is going to go into recession and then the political backdrop for the Prime Minister will become even worse. Now on to our listener emails, the fantastic messages you send us. We absolutely love reading them. And as the co-pilot will constantly tell you, I can rip them off happily from my column. Lots, of course, about the situation of the Prime Minister this week. This is from Mark. Alison writes that the Prime Minister could resign and give a colleague two years to settle in and win the election. Alison, I could end up as Liz Hurley's, Gillian Anderson's and Kate Beckinsale's secret lover with my wife's full permission, which is somewhat (laughs) unlikely, but far more likely than Boris Johnson resigning honourably. I'll bet you a crisp tenor that he will cling on to the bitter end just like Major did and we will be lumbered with the kneeling one as Prime Minister. I dare say by today's standards, this view makes me a lefty or a Remainer. And Sally says... I can't say how disappointed we feel about how Boris has squandered such a wonderful position. We never thought he'd be perfect, but I don't recognise him at all or the person who used to write witty and pertinent articles in The Telegraph. It is a wonder that Alison and Liam are able to keep Planet Normal going because without it, where would the opinions of ordinary people be able to find a platform? Economics is not my forte, but even I can follow Liam's comments as long as he doesn't get too technical. You're on your own there, Sally. I can't make a head and a tail of what he says. Thank you both for your journalism and Planet Normal. And it was wonderful to have four days of joyousness with Her Majesty's Jubilee and to be allowed to feel proud to be British. Hear, hear, Sally. That's a nice email. This is from Nick. Okay, so Boris squeaked through, but will he read the signals? Will he wake up and finally realise that what we want is a conviction politician with clear conservative policies? No more wishy-washy crypto Blairite nonsense. No more pumping good money after bad into the useless NHS. No more sucking up to the feckless scroungers in the civil service. No more weak, half-hearted 
policies on illegal immigration. No more jacking up corporation tax. So any foreign investors run a mile. It's now or never for this directionless charlatan to be a man, to do what he was voted to do and behave like a Tory, not some centre-left people pleaser. I, says Nick, am not hopeful. <laughs> and Steve says, don't forget that the Tories are about to make Britain move from being one of the lowest corporation tax nations in the G7 to one of the highest in one fell swoop. Corporation tax will go from 19% to 25%. I honestly don't think even Corbyn would have been that mad. What's gone wrong with the Tory party? Steve, here's a prediction. They won't do it. Mm, Okay, well, we'll watch that. We've had a lot on our perennial theme. Just to say, Liam, we were waiting for this report this week into the NHS from Sir Gordon Messenger, weren't we? Huge, damp squib. We'll talk about it more in future podcasts, but this call for urgent action to improve the quality of leadership in the survey. I mean, it's just absolutely talking about bullying culture, blame culture, as far as I can see. Not a word about the patients. And our story about it in The Telegraph reported that there was going to be a cut to diversity and inclusion jobs in the NHS as part of the biggest shakeup of management in a generation. But guess what, co-pilot? I went and read down the report. The report says, we are not advocating for additional EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion professionals. Indeed, we would anticipate a reduction in their numbers over time as leaders demonstrated that they are equipped with the right skills to address inequality and create inclusive working cultures for all. That means they are not going to sack a single one of those people. And on that theme from Sue... I suffer from a painful neurological condition. I last saw a consultant in 2015 and I now need to be referred again. I've just received a letter informing me that I am in a queue waiting for an appointment to be arranged. The waiting time for this service in nine out of 10 patients is 43 weeks. And to round off, Alison, how about this from Kevin? I can't vote for the Tory party again because it isn't a Tory party. Nothing they can do in the next two years will change that. I honestly believe they don't want to change tack now. I think they're patronisingly believe people will still vote Tory to keep Labour out. It's more likely a lot of Tory voters from 2019 won't vote at all. I'm not even as worried about a Labour Lib Dem or Labour SNP coalition Mm. as I was. The woke left already effectively controls schools and universities, the civil service, the NHS, the police, the arts and so on. This Tory government does nothing to stop this and a lot to enable it. So let's see the Labour Party try to deal with the consequences of its own madness. Sad, says Kevin, but that's how despairing Johnson's Tories, who aren't Tories, have made me feel. I told you that's how they feel, co-pilot. Well said, Kevin. And finally, John comes up with a suggestion. Lord Frost needs to be begged to stand as an MP when the opportunity comes He is the only one with a clear vision and, importantly, from my perspective, supports the smaller government concept. We live in hope. Keep up the good work. Well, I do think Lord Frost, mind you, he seems to be a conservative, Liam, so he'd probably be disqualified from being the Prime Minister. On that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison, what's your email of the week? I'm going to choose Sally for invoking both the Jubilee and expressing her disappointment with Boris, which chimes with my own. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. 
So Sally, drop us an email to planetnormal at uk. Put in the subject heading mug winner and we will send that rare as rocking horse poo mug to you. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our wonderful producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. <laughs> Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.